MSW Media. This week, there was widespread speculation after a report from BuzzFeed News stated that Donald Trump directed his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, to lie to Congress about the timing of the Trump Tower Moscow deal, which was ongoing during much of his presidential campaign. Some members of Congress suggested that they wanted to investigate this matter before the investigation of special counsel Robert Mueller was completed. But Mueller quickly issued a statement that the BuzzFeed news story mischaracterized the evidence he had. Since Mueller's statement, Trump's attorney Rudy Giuliani has made a number of bizarre comments about this matter. Why did Mueller issue the statement? Should Congress still investigate? And what do we make of Giuliani's statements? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host, who will come through, I believe, during part of today's podcast. But for now, I'm going to bring in my friend and former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal, who's been on this podcast a couple of times already, uh, talking about a number of different subjects. The Supreme Court uh, and the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Neil has, has argued over 30 cases before the Supreme Court. Uh, and then he also spoke at length about a number of issues, including uh, whether or not a sitting president can be indicted. We're going to talk today about all of the topics uh, that I laid out a moment ago, uh, including this recent statement by the special counsel. Welcome to the podcast, Neil. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's always a privilege to be with you, Renata. So as I mentioned on Twitter, we, you and I recorded, I'd say, a lengthy podcast, uh, literally uh, hours before the special counsel issued that statement. Uh, we are redoing uh, that now and recasting it given this news. And I have to say I was very, very surprised by the special counsel statement. What, what did you make of it? Yeah, I was very surprised. I mean, I actually think what we talked about last week isn't all that different than what I plan on talking about today. I don't think it changes uh, anything specifically, um, and you know, I'll explain why. But basically, there's a tapestry of very serious allegations of misconduct by Donald Trump, and I think they need to be investigated. And so I'm looking forward to talking about that with you. And obviously, one part of that investigation is the investigation by Special Counsel Mueller, but it is only one part of something larger. The Southern District of New York and the Justice Department more generally is investigating. Congress is now thinking about investigating and the like. So look, I think that that statement was a very, very unusual one for Mueller to make. Um, and there are any number of hypotheses online about why, uh, you know, I personally don't have uh, some sort of pet theory. Um, I think time is going to tell. But I do think the fundamental thing that underscores is really that 
there is a need for investigation. There are all sorts of conflicting reports, and the public is, you know, rightly getting antsy to try and uh, bring some of this information to light. And I think it would have been brought to light had we had a Congress for the last two years that was taking their constitutional seriously and investigating this stuff instead of distractions and sideshows. Well, let, I, before we get to some of that, because I do want to talk to you, uh, Neil wrote a uh, really interesting op-ed in the Washington Post with General Hayden, and it's I, I'm, I was encouraged to see that, not just because uh, you, you both were writing on an important subject, Neil, but also that it appears that General Hayden is uh, recovering uh, to the point where he was able to participate in drafting that, which is fantastic news uh, for the for the country. Um, but I do I do want, want you know want to talk a little bit about what we should make of this. I will tell you, Neil, that most of the questions from listeners were trying to get us to help them understand why it is that Mueller may have issued a statement here. Uh, versus in other situations. I have my own theories about that, uh, which I'm happy to share. But but one specific question that some of them had was that in there was a recent story that came out in the Washington Post uh, that that quoted people who were knowledgeable about the the creation of that special counsel statement. And at an, and at one point they talk about discussions between the special counsel and the deputy attorney general's office, uh, Rod Rosenstein's office. And a lot of the, the listeners are very interested to know, what, do you believe it would be appropriate for Rod Rosenstein to be involved in uh, or his office to be involved in the crafting of a statement uh, like this one? I, I do think it, it can be appropriate. Obviously, it will depend on the circumstances, and we are only privy to some of those circumstances, not them all. So I don't want to speak specifically about this episode and say it's right or wrong, but I can tell you that the purpose of the special counsel regulations, which I had the privilege of drafting back in 1999 as a young Justice Department pup, um, they contemplated that the acting attorney general or the attorney general would be supervising the investigation. And, uh, and so things like running such statements by the Deputy Attorney General, I think, were fully contemplated in this. And indeed, even the more robust Independent Counsel Act, which was in place when I was at the Justice Department that first time, and during, you know, I I got to watch all the interactions with Ken Starr and Deputy Attorney General Holder and Attorney General Reno back in 98 and 99. You know, even there, the Deputy Attorney General and the Attorney General had quite a role to play in questions like the one that came up on Friday. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with it as a matter of process. The question is about substance. And, you know, Rod Rosenstein is now not running the investigation for the Justice Department. You know, Matthew Whitaker, this acting fake Attorney General, in my view, is the one who is supervising the investigation, and notably, even after the ethics office at the Justice Department opined, he shouldn't be, that it was wrong to be doing so, and he's still doing it anyway. So I'm a little concerned about that and the possible interference that Whitaker might be um, engaged in with respect to either what happened on Friday or other things that might be happening that we don't know about yet. But as a matter of general principle, there isn't anything wrong with the deputy attorney general, um, you know, uh, having conversations with the special counsel about a statement like the one that came out on Friday. 
Yeah, I have to say, Neil, I was very interested in that Washington Post story uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, before that story came out, my initial take after reading the special counsel statement is that it's not really clear the extent to which the BuzzFeed news story is incorrect. In other words, the statement by the special counsel, like like all statements from federal prosecutors, or most statements, are very, was very carefully worded, and it essentially said that that the BuzzFeed news story, you know, mischaracterized the evidence, uh, or you know, in the statements that the special counsel had. And that could mean a whole variety of things beyond, uh, you know, or, or separate from whether or not the general thrust of the story was correct or not. But it seemed to me that the Washington Post story uh, with these internal sources, and it struck me as a kind of a story that had been blessed by what, whether it's Rosenstein's office or, or someone in the Justice Department and the powers that be, um, even though they were speaking off the record, it seemed to put out there that or that the general thrust of the BuzzFeed news story was incorrect. And I thought it was very interesting that 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 justice or some group of people thought it necessary to go out there and, um, you know, make that make those statements to The Washington Post. I thought that was very interesting and unusual. Um, You're absolutely right. It is unusual. And there's quite a degree degree of daylight between the special counsel statement on Friday and what the Washington Post is reporting now. Uh, on Friday, the statement could have been read very much, and you know, this is what I said on Twitter, so it's hard to know what to make of it. It could be a total repudiation of BuzzFeed, or it could be Mueller saying, look, my office doesn't leak. And BuzzFeed, you basically implied that my office was leaking information, and that is, you know, a cardinal sin to someone like Mueller. So it's hard, you know, that's that's where we were on Friday. But now with the the revelations today, and again, these are also anonymous sources, yeah, you know, exactly. but like BuzzFeed. So you know, there's a little bit of irony here in using new anonymous sources to discredit a story by old anonymous sources before. Um, but such is the nature of this, which is why, you know, uh, I'm happy to keep talking about this, but I do think at the end of the day, we're really, really in the realm of speculation and, um, and, and not something in which we have very many hard facts to go on. That's right. I, I'm going to, before we move on, the only reason I'm spending so much time in this, Neil, is I do care a lot about listeners' comments, and we've gotten a lot of questions on these topics. Totally. I, I get it. My, my mom is, my mom calls me every half hour trying to ask her to exp- ask me to explain what's going on with BuzzFeed and Washington Post. And so I, I'm totally aware of that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and she's in Chicago with you, Renato. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, so what one, one, you know, question people have had for me is uh, why, why could it possibly be that BuzzFeed news is saying that their sources keep telling them to stick to their guns and this, the truth is going to come out and it's going to be consistent with their story when we're getting these statements from Mueller and Rosenstein. And, and I guess, you know, one thing I would just mention to everyone is it's entirely possible that someone in law enforcement has seen documents or, or reviewed a transcript of testimony that leads them to conclusions that are different than Robert Mueller and senior federal prosecutors working with him have come to. I will say that 
it is often the case that uh, there are revelations publicly that I'll see speculation on Twitter, sometimes even by other legal analysts that I think are irresponsible or not warranted by that evidence. And I could imagine a situation where there is some legal complexity that an FBI agent somewhere uh, may not see or may not agree with, um, but that Robert Mueller thinks is very important as to this. So that's one at least possible explanation uh, to explain why that why that is the case um, so let me let me switch gears for a moment for a moment Neil because you wrote this op-ed with General Hayden uh, and I think it was inter- it was really interesting and provocative it's drawn a lot of commentary and it's it, the essentially the title of it you know suggests that you believe that that the that Congress should be um, starting to investigate uh, the factual predicates uh, regarding impeachment uh, and can you kind of summarize that for us and, and explain your view? Sure. I mean, I think General Hayden and I are both very, very reluctant impeachment people. Um, we do not, by any stretch, want to criminalize ordinary politics. And we think our founders gave us a system in which if someone wins a presidential election, you don't remove them for ordinary political mis- misjudgments, mistakes, disagreements, and the like. Um, having said that, there are now so many different stories that suggest high-level presidential wrongdoing that we think that an investigation is necessary. Now, not prejudging the outcome by any stretch. Impeachment is a process in an investigative move. We're not at all saying this is the result that should happen. And, you know, this is why it's unfortunate that something like the BuzzFeed story you know, clouds the set of issues. Obviously, if that story is true, it is an impeachable offense. There's no question about it. Nixon was impeached in Article 1, Section 3 for a very similar uh, accusation. But there's a lot more. And, you know, it happens so fast and almost every day or two, we kind of lose sight of that. And I know, Renato, like your podcast is about the events of this last week, but let's just back it up two more days to nine days ago, when on a Friday night, we learned about two bombshell stories happening at once. One, that a sitting president of the United States is under investigation by the FBI for potentially being a Russian asset. And second, that President Trump had secret meetings with troop with Putin one-on-one many times and took control of the notes and seized them from the translator and the like. That was last week. And then this week, we've learned all sorts of new things. I mean, even just today, um, and I know you've been tweeting about this, but the lies that have been taking place about Trump Tower discussions in Moscow are unbelievable. I mean, first, President Trump said during the campaign he had nothing to do with Russia. Then he had a little bit to do with Russia when more facts came out. And now today, Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, in a remarkable statement, says that Trump Tower discussions, quoting Trump, quote, were going on from the day I announced to the day I won. And as you pointed out, you know, that sure seems like a possible attorney-client waiver. So there's that set of problems. But also, you've just got constant shifting stories when it comes to Russia. And everyone in the so many people in the Trump world lie when it gets there. And then that's not all. We also have, of course, the Southern District prosecutors saying for one of the very few handfuls of times 
in American history that a president ordered the commission of felonies, these campaign finance felonies involving hush money payments to uh, various paramours of President Trump. Then you have the president also uh, threatening Michael Cohen uh, and saying, go after his father, father father-in-law. And then you have even a news story from the Wall Street Journal this week saying Michael Cohen brought bags of cash to someone to manipulate polls in favor of Trump. So you got all these different things going on. And, you know, any one of them in any ordinary presidency would be with counsel for an impeachment investigation. But all of them together, you know, I think the case is overwhelming. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Neil, for a lot of reasons. First of all, I don't even know if you've talked about the uh, the obstruction of justice that Trump committed. Uh, oh, right, <laughs> and and that to me is so. I was talking about the last week. <laughs> yeah, right, and I will tell you that is just to me. There's such a pattern of behavior there. Uh, not only you know, starting with the you know the Comey firing and and potentially before that, but then continuing onward. I mean, we had a, this bizarre moment where Trump tweeted out. Um, an attack on his own attorney general at the time, uh, Jeff Sessions, for not quashing the indictments of his, you know, friends and allies. I mean, he, you know, the two congressmen who have, uh, who have been indicted for very serious crimes. You know, he certainly evinces an, an intent to uh, quash the ordinary legal processes uh, in order to help himself and his friends. And to me, that's something that Congress should be concerned about in a, in a nonpartisan fashion. And it's it's bizarre to me that they have not. Um, yeah, and it, you're 100% right. And I was going to say, Renato, you, I think, may have been the first, if not the first, to really say in a lengthy piece in Politico, the president has obstructed justice with the firing of Comey and the like. And your point there, as I recall, was much more about the criminal side and whether or not a crime had been committed. And there's an overlap between the constitutional standards for impeachment and the criminal standards for when a crime has been committed. They're different. Um, But on something like this, you potentially have both. You've got both an impeachable offense and a potential criminal offense because of the obstruction issues you pointed out. Yeah, I, I exactly. I think that's exactly right. And and there's a lot of I, I will say to folks, you know, there's a lot of discussion about you'll see online about the fact that the standards for impeachment are different than the criminal law standards. I focus a lot on criminal law because that's my experience. And I th- and I can explain to you what it'll take to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury. Uh, and then I'll let other people explain what will convince senators of something because that is beyond my knowledge. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of similarity between those two things. You know, what, Neil, on this issue of, of an impeachment inquiry, uh, I will tell you I've had uh, numerous conversations uh, over the last couple of years with uh, with Congress, uh, members of Congress. And a lot of them have what I would say a very cautious approach towards beginning impeachment inquiries. They're very um, eager to wait for Mueller to be to to be to have that completed. And I think they believe that there's some political cost uh, with focusing on impeachment versus various other issues. You know, how would you respond to, to them? Yeah, no, look, I can understand that. I don't know that you know that impeachment is necessarily the right political move for the Democrats to make. It may be the right move for the president, as I'll explain in a second. But uh, look, I think it's their constitutional duty at the end of the day 
to ask these questions. I mean, just in two minutes, we've covered six potential crimes that the president may be involved in. And, and really, more than that, there's a kind of motif around them all, which is a disrespect for our constitutional order and the rule of law. And it seems to me that if you don't start an impeachment inquiry for something like that, what do you think it's for? Now, I take your point, Renato, and these Congress uh, folks who are talking to you, because I actually think the president, his behavior can almost only be explained by him wanting to get impeached. Um, you know, it's the only way really to make sense of his behavior. I mean, he's shut down the government on the basis of a bogus national security threat. And he's now engaged in all sorts of weird activity with the Russians. Um, and he really has no agenda left. He has no domestic agenda. His domestic agenda, as best as I can tell, is two things. It's Twitter plus the wall. That's all he's got. And impeachment proceedings, if they began, would allow him to distract the public and to, from the fact that he's got no agenda. And it plays really to something he loves to do, which is, I mean, he is a snowflake. He loves pretending to be the victim and everyone out to get him and this and that. And so I can understand why Democrats are reluctant. But at the end of the day, they swore the same constitutional oath as the president did. And I think that means that they got to have a real investigation and let the facts be what the facts are and then make the decision. What it, what about the, if the House Dems had those investigations without labeling them an impeachment inquiry? In other words, you know, as you, I think, alluded to earlier, Neil, on many of these matters, there was not an investigation really of any of any sort at all. You know, Devin Nunez was the head of the House Intel Committee. He was supposedly recused himself. He appeared to continue to interfere in that investigation. Uh, that investigation ended very early, and the House Democrats, I think, pointed to a lot of uh, documents and witnesses that they felt were not uh, were not looked at. Um, what, 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 how would you respond to the the charge that you know they should investigate all the factual predicates of this, but not not to use the I word? Look, if they want to do that, I think that's absolutely fine. I don't care about the label. I care about the substance. I want a real, serious investigation, one that um, obviously is cognizant of the fact that Mueller in the Southern District in New York is involved in an active investigation. So you got to have coordination between the two and make sure not to undermine any criminal pieces to the investigation. But I do think that's possible to do. And I don't care what you call it. I care that the constitutional function of the Congress that Madison identified in Federalist 51 as a part of our essential separation of, power, separation of powers and checks and balances is performed. Now, I think that our founders would have called this impeachment. I think that it's squarely within that kind of investigation. But if for reasons of nomenclature, someone wanted to use a different word, I don't really care. So let's talk for a minute or two about uh, Mr. Barr, who is, you know, before all of this uh, broke was in many ways the news of the day or, you know, few days. He had his confirmation hearings. 
Um, you know, and, and by a lot of accounts, he performed well, and I'll put that in quotes. Uh, I, I, I had serious concerns about him. That is, you, you know, you know, Neil, I tweeted about, about his failure to comport, you know, to uh, commit to follow the guidance of ethics um, officials, you know, his um, expansive power, uh, view of executive power, um, his uh, view of obstruction of justice, which I think is far outside the legal mainstream. But but I I wonder now you know where where do, where are we left with Bard do you you know do you still have some of those con, uh, some of the concerns that I do and, and where where do you think that's going to go going forward? Oh, I very much do have these concerns. I mean, you know, Barr has had two big claims to fame. One is he was famous for his role in the pardons during the Iran Contra investigation, you know, his kind of wild pardon bill. Um, you know, he actually told people that he wanted to go all the way on the pardons and he was proud of his role in ending this investigation into high level executive branch wrongdoing. So, you know, that's always concerned me. And then, you know, we learned closer up to the hearings that he had privately written a secret 20 page memo which I read as almost a campaign for the spot of attorney general for him. And it makes the argument that it's really almost impossible for Trump to uh, obstruct justice. Um, And, you know, the argument is a really thin one. The claim he makes is that in a criminal statute, the criminal statute has to say the words the president is included within it in order to encompass uh, presidential conduct. So if the president commits a murder, as best I can tell, that that isn't uh, a crime because the murder statute doesn't say it's illegal for everyone, including the president, to commit murder. Um, And that is a um, really kind of ridiculous view. Um, And look, I think he's a smart guy. But I don't think smart necessarily translates to intelligent, and I certainly don't think it translates to wise. And at this moment in time, when there is so much concern about this president's respect for the rule of law, I just think we could do a lot better than someone like this. And you know, one question that I wished that the senators asked um, in the hearings was, when, Mr. Barr, have you ever shown serious independence? When have you ever risked something uh, against your superiors in the executive branch? Um, you know, he said he would uh, resign if bad things happen. But, you know, someone who served as attorney general before for a long time, there should be a list of these. I mean, I certainly had them from the time I was uh, running the Solicitor General's office, which is a lower level position, times in which the White House was incredibly angry at me because of the independent stances I took. Um, And I think that's true for any high-ranking Justice Department official who does their job um, by carrying out the mission of the Justice Department as opposed to carrying out the president's political mission. And so that's what I'm concerned about. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. I sure hope I am. But, um, you know, I have a lot of concerns about this. Yeah, I I have to say the Barr memo to me is really uh, bizarre and problematic. You know, just... Speaking as a practicing lawyer, uh, you know that memo would have cost a heck of a lot of money to get out of Kirkland and Ellis. I mean, that was a 19-page single-space memo. Uh, it 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 frankly must have taken him I don't know 100 plus hours to to write 50 plus hours. A lot of time, very valuable time on his part. It just shows an intense motivation. 
Yeah, I mean, ordinarily making up stuff doesn't take that long, and there's a lot of made-up stuff in it, but there is, you know, a lot of detail, too. I mean, it, it does take a lot of effort to make such a ridiculous argument, and um, there's a lot of effort put into that memo. Right. It's just bizarre. It's like, why is the guy so emphatic and interested in making that point? It's it's bizarre. I mean, I'll just say I comment on a lot of issues, but it, it takes a lot less effort for me to write a, you know, a 280 character tweet uh, and writing an op ed sometimes, which is much shorter, 600 words, 800 words might take me an evening to do. So, um, you know, for to, to put that level of effort into something shows a tremendous motivation. And as you point out, I mean, his views are in my my sense, real silly, it, you know, it really comes down to, um, you know, it, it reminds me of, um, you know, the, the debates I had had in the past against, when, you know, I had done a one-hour thing against Alan Dershowitz when, back when I was on MSNBC, and it was, you know, him saying that the president, you know, could not, um, you know, could not be, uh, could not commit a crime by exercising his constitutional functions, uh, and and the, the the exceptions, he had these bizarre exceptions to that that made no sense. So, you know, for instance, I said, well, what if the president is, you know, d- trading a bribe in exchange for, you know, d- ending an investigation is, a co- you know, because he received a bribe. And Dershowitz is like, well, that's bribery that's different. And it's not clear to me that's different at all. It's just a bizarre uh, exception that I think him and Barr create in order to make a, a bizarre view and uh, an untenable view seem more reasonable. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. This Dershowitz and Barr view, and, and, and best I can tell, there are two of very few other people in the world actually by this set of arguments, um, doesn't make much sense when you really look into it. And there's a couple of fellow Chicagoans, um, uh, Eric Posner and his co-author, who've written a few pieces in the New York Times about this Barr memo. But to me, one very simple point is this. I mean, the argument of Dershowitz and people like that is, well, the president has an ability to, uh, if, if he has a function to perform, like pardoning someone or something like that, it, or firing a government official, it can't be a crime if they exercise it, even for wrong motives. And that's just flatly wrong. It's just like, you know, I have the right to destroy my laptop with all of its information on it. You know, the Constitution gives me that right. But I don't have that right if I know the FBI is about to knock on my door and seize it. That's called obstruction of justice and destruction of evidence. Um, So motivations do always matter in the criminal law. And I don't think that that fundamental, simple point is something that Dershowitz got. Yeah, I um, I have to say that that is bizarre, and I think a lot of a lot of our listeners are struggling to understand that view of executive power because they heard a lot about it this week, uh, and you know they, I think they don't they don't even understand you know where it comes from or why they have that view. You know, I, I think you know when we talked earlier, I think you had mentioned that you are someone who has a view. Uh, that that a lot of people describe as of the unitary executive, but you regard what Barr's view is is something different than that, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I am a unitary executivist, and what that means, it's a scholarly tradition which says that the executive branch is different than the other two branches, and it starts with the text of the Constitution in Article 2, which says the executive power shall be vested in a president, a president. It's unitary. 
And you contrast that with the vesting clauses, the opening words of Article 1, which vests the legislative power in 535 members of Congress, or Article 3, which vests the judicial power in the nine justices on the Supreme Court and all the lower court judges. So they diffuse uh, responsibility for the other branches. And so that's all that unitary executive theory means. It just means that the president is in control of the executive branch. It doesn't mean the president is above the law. There's no principle more sacred in the 500-year-plus Anglo-American tradition than the idea that no president, is, no person is above the law. Um, all it simply means is, is that the president is the one who controls executive functions. So let me bring in my, my friend Patty Vasquez, who just walked in. Great to have you back. <laughs> Thank you. I want to make sure we get to a, a couple of questions from uh, our listeners that they posted on, on Twitter. This one's about Rudy Giuliani, and they're asking, does Rudy Giuliani's CNN comment stating members of the campaign may have colluded mean they are preparing to throw even his kids under the bus? And uh, can, can tweets be crimes is another question. I'm not sure <laughs> where uh, they're going with that one. Unrelated question. But why yes. don't we talk a little bit, uh, Neil, in your views of about – I thought those were interesting earlier comments that I've never covered in the podcast about the campaign may have colluded even if Trump did not. Yeah, boy. I mean, it's hard to make – understand what Giuliani's strategy is. And, you know, in fairness to him, sometimes unlike his boss, he really does tell the truth. I mean, last year – he said it was a Muslim ban, and it truly was. And this past week, he uh, seems to have admitted on Wednesday some collusion uh, that took place between the campaign and Russia. Um, he tried to walk it back a little bit on Thursday. Today, you know, he had all these other statements. Um, I sure hope, I can't imagine that, you know, it's some sort of concerted strategy to throw the children under the bus. But Giuliani knows things that we don't. He has some sense of some of the things that Mueller knows. And uh, and it may be that uh, Mueller knows that, you know, the children um, maybe in uh, statements made to investigators or other things have, um, um, haven't been totally forthcoming. I don't know. We, we just, we can't speculate. But the one thing that is clear from the trajectory of the Giuliani comments is that this is a shifting story. And, they are constantly, you know, making new stuff up when it comes to Trump in Russia and the Trump Tower uh, of Russia and the Trump Tower meeting that took place in New York. And all of this, I think, has to be assessed against one of the most salient points about this investigation, which is in August of 2016, after President Trump, after Donald Trump secured the nomination, the FBI went and visited him and his top campaign officials and said look, we think Russia is going to try and infiltrate your campaign and engage in contacts with you. So we want to warn you about it. And we want to make sure that if they do come to you in any way, shape, or form, you tell us about it. What did Trump and his campaign do when those contacts occurred? Zero. And then they lied about it. And today we learned from Giuliani quoting Trump that there were Trump Tower discussions, Moscow discussions going on from the day he started the campaign until the day he became was elected president. I mean, that is just stunning. You know, it is it is stunning to me. And I have to say, regarding this earlier set of comments about collusion in the campaign, I mean, to me, 
the the I I agree with the point that's been made by many that, that Giuliani often tries to get out in front of news. Uh, you know, I, I, he famously did that on Hannity's show when he uh, mentioned that there were uh, payments that had been reimbursed by Trump uh, to uh, the women who uh, he was trying to keep silent. Uh, you know, he may have done that here. And I think the question is, is you suggest, Neil, you know, there could be things that Giuliani knows that we don't that might be coming out soon. It's also possible to me that Giuliani is reacting to recent news. You know, there had been this news that um, Manafort had given this internal poll data to a Russian intelligence operative. Perhaps Giuliani thinks it's not worth uh, trying to defend the notion that no one in the campaign uh, colluded with the Russians anymore. You know, what he said was bizarre and false, which is that the only crime that matters here, the only crime at issue here, is whether or not there was a conspiracy to hack a server and that Trump didn't do that. It was a bizarre and very narrow denial because there are a wide variety of crimes that may have been committed here. In fact, if I was looking to charge Mr. Manafort, uh, the Trump crime I would be looking at for it would be aiding and abetting uh, the, you know, the Russian um, conspiracy to uh, give contributions to, uh, you know, to a particular candidate in connection with the election, a conspiracy that, that uh, Mueller had charged last year. So it was a bizarre statement. I will say, you know, I've been on the CNN set with Giuliani in the past, and I've gotten the sense that the guy is just winging it uh, a lot of times. I, I don't, you know, he takes a lot less care talking about this extraordinarily important case on behalf of the president of the United States that most of my partners would take on a trivial matter. Uh, that's my sense of him. Yeah, I don't think I can really comment on that because, I mean, look, he's got a tough client. He's a client that, you know, I'm so fortunate to have the best of clients. Um, but, uh, but you know, he's got one of the more, more challenging ones that I think the legal profession has ever seen in its, you know, several hundred year history. So, uh, you know, I, I am uh, a little bit sympathetic to his plight. Well, let's talk a little bit about his more recent comments, Neil. You've alluded to them a couple times. You know, Giuliani today uh, made the news. This is we're recording this on on um, on uh, Sunday. That you know, Giuliani on Sunday, the January twentieth, that Giuliani has made news by by essentially saying that Trump had conversations about Trump Tower Moscow throughout the um, entire campaign from beginning to end, which as far as I can tell is new, uh, at least new uh, uh, evidence that I was, or a, a, a fact that I was not aware of before. Uh, and then, as, as you, you noted, I pointed out on Twitter, Giuliani at one point literally quotes Trump and says, I had a uh, conversation with Trump and Trump said, you know, and then he quotes Trump saying that he had these conversations about Trump Tower Moscow with Cohen throughout the entire campaign, which uh, would appear to be a waiver of attorney-client privilege because attorneys and clients, when they have private conversations, are supposed to keep them, attorneys have a duty to keep them confidential and not to tell them to third parties. And when they do, it waives the privilege over the entire conversation. So um, what do you make of those of those comments, Neil? So I guess I'd say two things. One is you said that you weren't aware of this, of the facts here that uh, that Trump was involved in Trump Tower Moscow negotiations from the start of his campaign till the end. And I don't think it's just you who were unaware. I think the American public were unaware because actually the president said the reverse. He said, I got nothing to do with Russia during the entire campaign. It was only after he won the election that they started walking back 
on that story. And to me, that is a really serious thing. Whether or not it's criminal or not, it is a fraud that was put on the American people. And, you know, this was an important part of the election. And indeed, you know, Trump lied about it for a reason, which is he wanted to hide it from the people because if the American people knew about it, it might have changed some votes. And so to me, that's one important thing. And then the second, on the attorney-client privilege, you know, I saw your tweet about this saying that it's a waiver of attorney-client privilege. And I, I guess it could be. I mean, there is no more classic way to waive the attorney-client privilege than to publicly disclose what you're claiming are private communications. But there are ways in which when attorneys do it, it's not a waiver of the privilege because if they're doing it without authorization from the client and acting on uh, rogue as, as a rogue agent or something like that, then the privilege could still be maintained. And I have no idea which one of those things is right, but if Giuliani is the president's lawyer tomorrow, then I think we can assume that uh, that this was part of some authorized strategy that they had. Um, and uh, and therefore, as long as Giuliani was authorized to uh, release that information, you're absolutely right. It's a waiver of attorney-client privilege, and I think could be really troubling for the president because really most of his defenses re- you know, revolve around secrecy and hiding and saying, I don't have to talk to Mueller. This is privilege, attorney-client. That's privilege, executive privilege and the like. And once he's unable to hide what he's done, um, I think it becomes a harder investigation for him. You raise an important point, Neil, which I think some commenters on Twitter also mentioned, which is the client, not the attorney, is the one who who can waive privilege. Uh, the issue here, of course, is attorneys are presumed to be acting generally in uh, at the direction of their clients and with the authorization of their clients. And like you said, you know, the, the, it will be it could be very hard soon for Trump to disclaim this waiver by Giuliani. So unless they walk this back in the next day or two, this is you know been published in the New York Times. It's getting a substantial amount of attention. Uh, it, you know, if there is no walk back by the White House. Uh, you know, and like you said, Giuliani remains his lawyer. Uh, you know, months later, if they try to say, well, no, Giuliani was a rogue and he wasn't doing this with authorization, I think it would be an uphill battle. And of course, it would also create a conflict between Trump and Giuliani, which would be very messy. Uh, akin to, you know, for listeners of the podcast will remember when I was discussing Manafort and his attorneys and some of their bizarre uh, shenanigans, uh, you know, going behind Mueller's back and so on. Uh, you know, there, if Manafort was trying to contest that and say those were outside of his instructions to his attorneys, um, you know, that would create an, a conflict there and, and they wouldn't be able to represent him any longer. Um, so, Neil, let me ask you, I know you you're, you'll ha- you are running short on time. What is there some, anything in particular that you want that you think we should be focused on in the days and months to come? I think the most important thing is that everyone needs to be pushing for the most robust investigation possible by the Congress of the United States. Um, It's fine to have these law enforcement investigations. That's great. But those are really focused only on the criminal side of things. And there's a whole range of behavior here, which is, you know, maybe not always illegal. Sometimes it may be, but extra legal and deeply of concern to the American people, including lying about one's dealings with Russia and the like. And, 
look, if Donald Trump thinks he's innocent of all of this, he's got the most to gain from an investigation that looks through all of this, uncovers the facts, and presents them. And, you know, at least me and I think most Democrats would much rather have the investigation come out and clear the president. Nobody wants to go through a wrenching impeachment process that's going to harm the country and tear it apart. So, look, I think that facts have to come out. The investigation's got to proceed. Um, and instead of accusing this of being a witch hunt, I think let's recognize these investigations, which have already started to bear fruit for what they are, which is part of our constitutional process designed to protect and safeguard the rule of law. Yeah, I think no matter what your perspective, uh, knowing more facts, knowing the truth about things that happen uh, is in everyone's interest. And, you know, really, you know, regardless of your views on Trump, um, these matters, I think, are serious. I mean, the fact that, you know, last week I had a former CIA officer and a former FBI counterintelligence agent talking about how, as you, you alluded to earlier, Neil, that this news that the president may, in fact, be compromised by the Russian government. I mean, you can only, you know, to even have those sort of conversations uh, and, and um, you know, have good reason to be concerned about that uh, suggests to me the need to investigate further. So thank you so much, Neil. You you have been you know so fantastic. Thank you for for doing this even a second time for us. Yeah. Uh, we can't thank you. We we really can't thank you enough. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be with you and to have all of these great questions from you and your listeners. Just such a privilege to be with both of you tonight. Thanks. Well, uh, Patty, let's. I am eager to sort of talk to you for a while. We were trying <laughs> just so the listeners understand. Neil Neil was kind enough to come back and do this after this news broke. I did not want to, even though a lot of our discussion from before, most of it was still on point. I thought it was important to re-record this with the new news. And, and Neil was kind enough to come back, but he had limited time. So, you know, thank you, Patty, for, for, for allowing Neil to be the one taking most of this to the airtime. Oh, here. I know how important this is because I agree with you. The, you know, the need to make sure that we reflect what's happening in real time is hard for us because of the nature of how we do this. But it's also important that we make sure we reflect what's actually happening. Exactly. So the, just so everyone understands, and we're, we have more discussion to come because me and Patty are going to talk for a little longer. Um, you know, we literally do these podcasts on a moment's notice when there is breaking news, and it is not always easy to get guests together and react. Sometimes uh, the news shifts before we're even able to get something out there. So, Patty, one, one thing that I thought would I did want to talk a little bit about were these comments today um, in which Giuliani said that, of course, um, uh, his client, Donald Trump, was talking with Michael Cohen about his testimony to Congress uh, before he testified. And I thought that was really bizarre. I will just say I represent uh, clients who are sometimes themselves under criminal investigation. Sometimes I represent witnesses in criminal investigations. Uh, I have ne I've always instructed those people not to talk to anyone else about their potential testimony. Sure. Uh, you would think that would be important. That would just be common sense. You wouldn't want any accusation you were getting your story straight or, or uh, trying to obstruct justice in any way. So you know that you know for Giuliani to pass that along as though that's just such an obvious point was or obvious thing to do is bizarre and and it really you should expect 
if you are a witness or a subject of a criminal investigation and you're talking to other witnesses or subjects about your their testimony, you should expect that to be investigated and to be looked at for obstruction of justice. No doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, every day something bizarre happens and uh, I, I can't I can't keep up sometimes, Renato. I know that your your listeners feel the same way. Well, I will I will just say, I mean, it, it, it can be very hard for me. I mean, I will plan a day uh, in which I have a whole lot of, because I have other jobs, uh, like practicing law, you know, a whole other set of things I'm going to do, and then something happens, and I try to rejigger my schedule around. It can be tiring. It's like a treadmill of sorts. But I, I love how much your listeners and your followers on Twitter, I mean, they really want to understand some of these things as they as they happen, and so we appreciate that. So let me, I want to talk about a couple things. I, I spent a while looking through everyone's questions myself. I tried to ask some of your questions earlier, even though Patty was not here. She's much better at that than I am to Neil. But one, one I think, question that a lot of folks have is what really the difference is between Trump directing Cohen to lie and what we knew before and from all the other evidence out there about Trump and Cohen so if you look at the Cohen sentencing memorandum, and I wrote a very lengthy thread dissecting that at the time, and it came out very late at night, and essentially in that sentencing memorandum, Cohen's attorney uh, set forth what he believed the evidence would show regarding Cohen testifying before Congress. And what he said was essentially that Cohen um, had been in touch with and talking with Trump's attorneys and White House staff before he testified, and he discussed the substance of his testimony with them. And then in addition to that, he said that tr that Cohen would watch uh, Trump on television and hear what Trump was saying and know what he was supposed to be saying based upon what Trump said on television. He implies, essentially, through the whole piece, he does a fantastic job of, of writing and, and doing this on behalf of his client. He implies that Trump's attorneys and the White House staff knew that Cohen was going to lie or were on board with that, but he never comes out and says it, which suggested to me he didn't have the evidence to back it up. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is you may say, well, what if it was, it was secret or something like that? You know, if that was the case, he has an ethical obligation to inform the judge of all the circumstances around his client's uh, actions that would impact the sentencing. And I think if he knew of something beyond what he said, he would be incumbent to file, even if it was under seal, some additional information to the judge, making the judge aware that the crime, one of the crimes that he was convicted of, lying to Congress, was actually done at the direction of Trump. Now, I've had a number of you point to me um, to a segment of a paragraph in the Cohen sentencing memorandum. You, two or three of you asked questions about it in the, the, the threads that I posted asking for questions for this episode, in which the, the attorney says that Cohen was a directed to lie or directed to commit both of the crimes that he's convicted of, the campaign finance crime and the lie to Congress. And what I would just say to you is, if you read that sentence in and of itself, I can see how it suggests that Trump directed Cohen to lie to Congress. But if you look at the entirety of the sentencing memorandum, it's really clear that his attorney went to great lengths to 
say as much as he could about what he could say about Cohen being directed, and he never got there. He never said that Cohen was directed by Trump's attorneys or Trump's White House staff. He said essentially that Cohen heard what Trump said and he knew he was supposed to go along with that. He says that he had those conversations. But if you read it in that context, that statement on its own doesn't really go that far, which is why it didn't leap out to people at the time. I think maybe he wrote that in artfully, maybe it was in, in not entirely accurate, but in the context of the whole memorandum, it doesn't mean that. And I take it from some of your comments that somebody went on MSNBC and took that con that paragraph out of context. Uh, and if that person did that, um, you know, they, they I think were uh, mistaken, and they they really should um, should go back and correct that because I don't think um, that Cohen's attorney made it clear that um, that that the president of the United States directed him to lie to Congress. And trust me, if he did, uh, I and my thread and many, many other uh, people would have been talking about it a lot earlier than we did. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is everyone's uh, trying to pull together a point of view and to offer their, their insight into it. And it, it, it's also um, sort of jumbled, I guess. Yeah, I mean, look, one thing that's happened over the course of this, I will say when the, the Mueller investigation first started, there weren't a lot of people offering legal dissection analysis of this. I was a voice in the desert at that time. There are many more now. And I think, um, first of all, when you have a lot of differing views, there's a greater chance that somebody's going to get something wrong. But I also think there is a bit of an incentive to take small things and to magnify them and potentially... Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation out there and you can have these could this and maybe that and perhaps Mueller will be able to do this or I believe Mueller will be able to do that. And it can just take a life of its own, I think, at times. It, there's an incentive for that because people are more excited about that stuff than sometimes just looking at what is there and, and what you can very, very logically infer from that. And I, I just think that sometimes that leads to um, uh, speculation that's not warranted here, I think. Um, that, that you know, as to the Cohen piece of it, I am not saying, and we could talk about this in length as well, Patty, I'm not saying that that eventually won't be proven that, that Trump directed Cohen to lie. I, I'm not to Congress. I don't know one way or the other. But just that statement in Cohen's sentencing memorandum and the other information we have publicly does not demonstrate that. And, and from some of that information that's avail available publicly, there's been references to Individual One, and one of the listeners wanted to ask, how are, how are legal scholars able to deduce from the Cohen testimony that Individual One is Donald Trump? So literally at one point in one of these um, one of these documents, they indicated that individual one was elected president on a specific date. Oh, there you go. Yeah, they Boom. make it really clear. And you, a lot of uh, some of you have asked me in the past, well, why then would they obscure it? And that is just Justice Department policy. I mean, I had times when I was a federal prosecutor that I was obscuring the names of popular companies. You know, it could be Amazon or eBay. And it was very clear whatever, what everyone was talking about. Um, or I would be talking about a particular restaurant at a particular address. That was It was clear what I, what, what I was referring to, and anyone who bothered to use Google could figure it out. But it was it's Justice Department practice not to put the names of individuals and entities that aren't charged in the legal documents. So one, one other issue that I think a number of you touched on that's sort of a bigger, broader issue is, you know, what happens if it's just Trump 
indirectly encouraging Michael Cohen to lie. What do we make of that? Okay, so let me explain that uh, the law on this to you. It is, and the reason I was so con- I was so direct about this when the the BuzzFeed News report came out is because that was very straightforward. I mean, what they what they claimed is that Trump directed Cohen to lie. Well, if you direct someone to lie under oath or to Congress, it's a crime. Period. No question. So then. What, what about if you're not doing actually directing them, ordering them to do it? Well, if you're corruptly persuading somebody to lie, then it's a crime. And what that means is this, it's like this corrupt intent we've heard discussed before. If you want them to mislead Congress and you're telling them to, to testify that way for that purpose, then it's a crime. If you're mistaken or if you just don't care or aren't fo- focused on the details, then, it is not a, then, then it's not a crime. And essentially, what often happens in these situations, um, you know, a lot of times crime bosses, uh, when they, they, there's an understanding between them and their underlings that they're going to lie about crime, um, but they don't talk about it, and it's not really discussed, and it's not written down, and it's just sort of understood. Well, those, those crimes can be very challenging to prove, and I've said many times, everyone, it's hard to prove crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. This is one of those situations where there may be a layer of nuance here that Mueller's team sees, and they are trying to work their way around because actually proving that um, can sometimes be difficult. Well, and that was one of the things that, you know, people are, are discussing and arguing about what Mueller's office is. You know, the headlines all said, you know, denying the BuzzFeed article. But really what they're saying is it's inaccurate, which could mean a lot of different things. But what you're saying is the the elements that are included in the BuzzFeed article is that there's that they said there were emails or text, which would be hopefully in many people's minds evidence. Yeah, I mean, what what caused the BuzzFeed article to create such a stir so quickly was that it said in in the text of the document essentially that Trump committed a crime. It was a crime that everyone, I think there's no reasonable disagreement that it's a, it would be an impeachable offense because um, there were articles of impeachment drawn up for Nixon that, um, that, that included that same crime, uh, directing someone to lie to Congress. And it said that there was texts and emails and documents um, um, that proved that. Now, I think when we recorded this the first time, I talked about the fact that, you know, it wasn't clear to me that these emails and texts would be Trump's because I've talked to reporters who indicate that Trump doesn't really use emails or texts in it with any regularity. You know, what it could be is Cohen, after the fact, emailing people or texting people. You know, it's unclear, you know, that whether that necessarily proves everything that the, the, the article says it's going to prove. So from my perspective, what very well may have happened here was a law enforcement officer somewhere who's probably not involved in the main investigation, because if it was somebody somebody who's regularly leaking to BuzzFeed that was a main investigator in this case, we probably would have heard a heck of a lot more uh, from those folks at BuzzFeed News. So it's probably somebody more tangentially involved, and they may not see the full picture. They may not understand the nuance. You know, a lot of times uh, what I spent my time working on when I was a federal prosecutor is it was crystal clear that somebody, in my mind, that somebody had committed fraud, but proving that they had the intent to defraud beyond a reasonable doubt 
or that they had knowledge of some subject that they had that, that was in a false document that they had signed or something that that's very that seems very would seem very hyper technical to our listeners but is really important to a federal prosecutor you know in that regard what what would you feel how would you feel about you know I'm not sure kind of you know prosecutorial uh, level I mean high profile cases you had would a journalist story like this have an impact on an investigation that you were trying to conduct sure I mean the, yeah it is so the the the, the intersection between pro- prosecutors and the press is very interesting so prosecutors very rarely comment to the press and one thing that um, f- that listeners should understand as to why that is it's because everyone um, who is under investigation uh, has a has a right not to have their jury pool, for example, tainted by s- stories that are not necessarily accurate. So when you generally, when there's an investigation, what happens is eventually at some point the investigation w- goes with what we would call overt and the prosecutors would show themselves by, let's say, uh, issuing a, you know, executing a search warrant, uh, let's say like at Cohen's home, like they did at home and home and office and so on, and, and then you know there'd be speculation, but the prosecutors themselves wouldn't say anything until an indictment comes out, and the indictment would speak for itself. Or sometimes there'd be a press conference, which in which a pro, the head prosecutor would go up there um, and essentially regurgitate the indictment. Uh, a bunch of different ways, but really not say anything beyond that. And it would be made very clear in the press release and in that press conference that the indictment's merely allegations and it's not proof. And it's done because the goal there is not to prejudice any potential conviction. So that's what makes this entire um, episode very unusual. And one thing, you know, Neil and I spoke earlier about this Washington Post article that came out today that looked to me like it was from somebody at the Justice Department essentially disputing a lot, essentially going through the process of how this came came into be the statement by Mueller came to be and suggesting that the whole thrust of the BuzzFeed article was wrong um, and one thing they talked about there is that apparently Mr. Carr who's the spokesperson from the Mueller's office sent a portion of Cohen's testimony I think it was to the reporter um, and and indicated it, it, that that didn't correspond or jibe with the article, and he's in the reporter says, "Well, I haven't really, lo- you know, gleaned anything from this. I just take it to be an FYI in, in, in an email back." And Carr said, "Yeah, this is just an FYI." One thing I will just say to reporters is, if a prosecutor says anything to you um, or sends anything to you, there's probably a reason why. I would read it, read into that quite a bit. I know that some a number of reporters listen to our podcast, so I'm saying this partly for your benefit. Because uh, some of them have reached out to me about the podcast, but also I would just say this to reporters: you know, if if you have an inve- uh, have a um, uh, an article like this, I think instead of just emailing, I think there is a value in having a conversation with the spokesperson on background, uh, where there's no you know, in, and I will tell you as a federal prosecutor, at times I had these conversations with reporters on background. Um, my cases were not like this one where, where people were doing podcasts from other parts of the country on them, but they were big news in the Wall Street Journal or, or uh, Bloomberg or you know, Reuters or New York Times. They were, they, were, they were cases that had huge financial impact potentially. And uh, you know, it would just be to help to correct the record as to what, 
what we what the if they're they're about to say something that's false or or create a create a problem for somebody, I would correct the record and say that's actually not exactly what happened. Uh, I'm saying this on background just so you don't report something that's false. And I think that you know perhaps Mr. Carr may have been willing to do that, but that that's the sort of thing that I think could have been could have been helpful and resolve this. Well, a lot of people are wondering if the statement from Mueller's office is to all is also directed at wanting to slow Congress down and, you know, this sort of rush to impeach or to demand more information? So what I think, you know, from my perspective, the way I look at it, and we touched slightly on this, but not really directly to this point. I just briefly said this. You know, I do think that if this was, if this was a, a um, uh, uh, an inaccurate article on a on another point about another person in another context. I don't think Mueller would have issued the statement. So, for example, early on in the Mueller investigation, there are reports that Paul Manafort had a no knock warrant, that a search warrant that was executed at his home, and that has a very specific meaning. And I remember at the time commenting and explaining what no knock warrants were. CNN and other news outlets reported that there was a no knock warrant. Man, uh, excuse, Mueller never came out and corrected that error, and eventually, in a court filing, in a footnote, said that those reports were in an error after Manafort had already been charged. And so, why did Mueller not feel the need to do it in that context, but felt the need to do it here? And to me, what it suggests, uh, you know, or is that here this was uh, uh, had the context and the stakes were much higher, right? Sure. This was involved the president of the United States, and you already had members of Congress using this article as a basis for saying, we need to start our own investigation before the Mueller reports and so forth are issued. And um, they were getting ahead of the matter, and whether it was Mueller or Rosenstein or both, they felt like this was that they needed to act to prevent you know things from getting out of control. And is, is, how, what kind of an impact would that have just in the investigation? You talked about when you were a prosecutor, you know, you wouldn't want to taint the the jurors and, and things like that. But with Mueller, obviously, as you mentioned, it's such a high profile situation. I, I would think that he would also want to avoid muddying the waters more with people getting all up in arms about this. Yeah, it's really a challenge, though, for Mueller. See, so Mueller saying anything um, can create additional problems. So from now on, when there's a story that breaks, if Mueller doesn't comment, does that mean it's true? Right. Okay. Good point. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, so uh, it (laughs) it creates a lot of problems, actually, if you comment. And, you know, I think James Comey and his handling of the Clinton email investigation shows us some of the dangers of really getting yourself out there. So... You know, I think Mueller has tried to say as little as possible. I don't think this is going to set a new standard. I don't think we should assume that if Mueller doesn't speak, that, you know, that that means something. Because I it, I think we've seen, as the example I use with the no-knock warrant, we've seen examples where Mueller has not spoken and, thing, and stories have turned out to be false. I will just say, when I investigated, for example, CEOs of, you know, Fortune 500 companies, I would literally in my own files, not even use the names of those companies. Um, and in our internal, you know, electronic systems, I would, th- that's the level of secrecy I would use internally in, in the United States Attorney's Office where I would expect that everyone's part of law enforcement because you can have an impact on stock price and other things just based on the, the existence of an investigation. It's so highly secret. I can only imagine the level of secrecy 
that Robert Mueller is placing on an investigation involving the president and uh, you know of the United States. So I would, uh, you know, I would expect. I, I, there's no question, you know, this took a, a whole day, I think, for almost a day for that report to come out, uh, that statement to come out, and I can see why, because this is the sort of action that is, that, you know, can have a huge impact on the nation, um, and it can set a, a difficult precedent as well. Well, and, you know, for the most part, when your listeners and uh, followers on Twitter, you know, have questions, it's usually to sort of forward the conversation. I, I'm tempted to ask you this one because uh, I responded already in the feed, but uh, one of the listeners wanted to know, you know you spent an entire day of your life hyperventilating about the BuzzFeed debunked, debunked report. Do you consider you know, Mueller's office statement to be debunking or denying? Because I thought of, you know, I, I read it and, and when it, you, you see the word inaccurate, does it mean that the entire thing is wrong? So, okay, let's talk about that. I mean, first of all, um, First of all, you don't hyperventilate. <laughs> I saw no paper bags involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. You know, I think I will say to everyone, I'll, I'll be very, um, I want to be very straight up with everyone. I um, I try to be careful and thoughtful about what I do comment on. I don't comment on a lot of things that I don't think are worthy of comment. In other words, they're not from a reputable, reputable enough source. They don't really move the ball forward. Um, a lot of times you'll see other people commenting at length about subjects that I don't, and it's because I don't think that they are things that the public should be focused on potentially. I thought this, on its face, it appeared to be an important story. It was from a source that had uh, reporters that had um, broken some important news in the past, and so that had proven to be correct. So, you know, I, I thought it was worthy of comment. It was certainly extraordinarily important news. And frankly, even members of Congress and the president's uh, own spokesperson and his and, you know, uh, and many others were, were commenting on the same on the same thing. And it, it was certainly, um, I'd say, a loss for all of us that that the country spent time focused on something that that may or may not be true. Now, what I will say is that to get to your point, um, uh, Patty, the, the statement from Mueller was so vague, it could be something very minor. Um, to me, it could have been, I don't know, but I don't agree with Neil that it could have just been uh, that he didn't want to be perceived as leaking. I think, but it could have just meant that, for example, that the text messages didn't relate to this specific point or something very, you know, or maybe it was an indirect, uh, you know, he indirectly, you know, um, told uh, Cohen to do it instead of directly or some, some nuance like that. But the Washington Post story today from these unnamed DOJ sources, and, and I will just say, you know, the, the reporters who wrote that won the Pulitzer Prize, um, you know, very uh, important reporters, um, and I, I, it, strong, it looked like to me something that came from like Rosenstein's office or something, mm. you know, suggested that the core of it had not, you know, was not accurate. The core statement of Trump directing Cohen and essentially suggested that what, what the truth was was something more akin to what was in Cohen's sentencing memorandum that we discussed at length earlier. And if that's the case, then that's the case. Although I, the BuzzFeed reporters are on, were on, you know, CNN and elsewhere today, saying that their sources stand by it and so forth. Well, look, even at the at, in the moments after Mueller's office made the statements, all of the the outlets were saying Mueller debunks, Mueller denies the BuzzFeed piece, and that was right afterwards. I have to wonder how much newspapers and a lot of the outlets are trying to bend over backwards to go, no, we're being, you know, we're being unbiased. 
because when I, you know, I started looking into uh, Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, I actually watched the movie last week with my family, and they had done, they had written a piece that was inaccurate as well when they were writing a piece about the chief uh, chief of staff for Nixon, uh, Bob Halderman. You know, they wrote a piece that uh, about. Uh, one, a grand jury testimony that ended up being inaccurate, and that almost derailed their investigation as well. I just, I just wonder how much is now trying to go. No, because there's so many people saying that this is all fake news. It does undermine the credibility of journalism in general with this, uh, this sort of development this week. Yeah, I gotta say, I, I um, <clears throat> one of my concerns of, from all of this when I was. Watching the news last night, uh, this when all of this, or was it two nights ago? I should say when all of this went down, the, you know, and, and Mueller issued the statement. I, I was really concerned, you know, that this would be used as a way to attack the media um, and sort of lend credence to Trump's narrative that the the media is the quote enemy of the American people, which I do not believe is the case. Um, and and it, it one thing I think it does show for all journalists is the importance of being careful and thoughtful. Uh, when you are um, putting a story out there, being as careful as possible. We talked about some ways to do that. But I will say some of the commentary um, on on the subject, I thought, went way beyond what was necessary. You know, I, for instance, you know, one person on my network uh, on CNN, because I'm, I'm an analyst there, Jeff Tubin, who's is their senior legal, uh, legal analyst, you know, was talking about how this, you know, will be, you know, he was essentially saying this is going to be used to show that the entire media um, is this left-wing enterprise, and I, I don't, I don't disagree that some people will say that stuff, but I think that repeating those talking points essentially affirms that sort of thing. And I think sometimes I think there there was a sense here by everyone that hey, let's. Um, let's you know immediately sort of say to kind of jerk the opposite way and say there's nothing to this and, and i certainly didn't think that was warranted after the initial statement i think this washington post story is a little different um one thing i will say is i have often been critical even on here on this podcast of runaway speculation i i said that earlier on this podcast about things the buzzfeed story i think is different than that and so because the BuzzFeed story was sourced to law enforcement and, you know, had was very concrete and claimed that there was very substantial proof of a, a, an apparent federal crime. I think that's newsworthy. I think that's something where you're not going beyond the four corners of that article to comment on. I think the issue is, you know, was with the sourcing of that story and whether it's accurate or not. And, and certainly there's been these statements by Mueller uh, and now these unsourced statements to the Post. Otherwise... Um, what I think is more problematic is when we get too far beyond what we actually know. Uh, and what I would encourage listeners to do is to just be actively um, thinking about what's the source for these things. I would trust sourcing from Mueller himself much more than I would trust sourcing from unnamed sources. Now, but you have to be also careful about that. Um, you know, a number of you, when you were asking questions, I had three different threads where I had questions for listeners asking for this podcast. And in one of them, people were posting um, that that segment of the Cohen sentencing memorandum as if it was Mueller's own statement. Right. And that is not what Mueller wrote. That's what Cohen's attorney wrote. And so we just have to be careful. Uh, I understand for all of you, you're not attorneys, but just, you know, um, before you jump leap to big conclusions, if you're leaping to a conclusion that most everyone else doesn't have, 
I think then you have to be the most thoughtful and careful about where what your sources are. Okay. I'll double check everything. <laughs> I've not let you. I know you're making me feel like a school teacher. No, you're right though. I, look, we have these conversations on my show, and people, you know, they look. People want a sense of justice, and when they see that things seem to have been have the the deck stacked against them, you know, whether it was the election or everything that's happened since, or even the way Donald Trump conducted his business before, you know, people still want his tax returns. They people are thirsty for something. And yeah, I mean, there's no look. There's no question. A lot of people. Are, are especially are interested in knowing people ask me all the time, is this it for the Trump presidency? And, and what I would just say to everyone is remember this, you know, there is there are challenges to proving things beyond, you know, proving crimes beyond a reasonable doubt as anyone but Trump. And there's certainly a huge challenge in convincing 20 Republican senators to do anything uh, that would be against Trump. So, um, you know, be patient and obviously, all of us, even though there's this important news about the Trump presidency, we can't lose our focus from the 800,000 plus people um, who are not getting their paychecks. You know, some of my former colleagues at the U.S. Attorney's Office, not just uh, former federal people who are currently federal prosecutors, but even, um, you know, their support staff and others who are, you know, aren't getting paid. And there are many other people, uh, federal employees and contractors who aren't getting paid and, and a lot of other serious uh, problems that our that our country is facing. So we we have an important. It's an, a very difficult time for our country, and all of us have to continue doing what we can to be active and vigilant. I agree, and I'm I'm impressed by how many groups, organizations, and and just people are stepping forward to help those who aren't receiving their paychecks. Everything from where my son gets his music lessons, they're they're waiving their fees, and I know that the Anti Cruelty Society is make, putting together care packages so people can continue to take care of their pets, uh, to obviously food banks and all, all kinds of groups stepping forward. So that's that's I think you're right. I think that we have to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, I, I have to say one thing that I think should be considered when this shutdown is over is we need to have legislation that compels lenders and um, and others to give a reprieve to people who are federal employees who are, who are having trouble making payments during a shutdown. I, I lived through a couple shutdowns. It's hard to juggle your bills around. And we're um, going into week situation. five. Can you imagine? Yeah, unbelievable. Well, Patty, um, we'll be back again soon. Thank you to all. Hopefully all, not that soon. I mean, yes, I know so many of our listeners want to. I mean, this was a quick, uh, good job, Renato. I know this was a lot to pull together so quickly after already recording the other one. So great well, job. That this is, I feel an obligation to all of you. It was hard to stomach throwing away a very good and long episode, but we, I think we did the right thing here, and hopefully uh, we'll be back again soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 